Hello, I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, why did Catherine Zappone's appointment as UN envoy ignite such political controversy? It's been a strange few days in Irish politics. At the start of last week, politicians and their advisers were in wind-down mode. They were looking forward to a summer break that they didn't really get last year because of the pandemic. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, a scandal erupted. It was stroke politics, it was cronyism, and it was a reverse approach by a former minister to a current minister. It started last Tuesday on August 27th. When journalist Daniel McConnell tweeted that the cabinet had agreed to appoint Catherine Zappone, the former Minister for Children, to a newly created role of UN Special Envoy for Freedom of Expression. Jack Horgan Jones, you've been reporting on this story for the Irish Times. When the news broke that this appointment had been made, it was pretty obvious that this was going to cause some controversy. What made this appointment controversial from the very start? So, I mean, Catherine Zappone. She has a long and storied history in in the public eye as an activist, as a senator, but most pertinently for this this story, she was a member of the last government. She was the Minister for for Children and Youth Affairs in the Leo Varadkar government that ran up until last February. And people asked, what is this job and why is it handed to to Zappone without any competition? I think one of the things that everyone has kind of said throughout this process is that Catherine Zappone is a good fit for this job and were it to have been publicly advertised. And were she to have applied for it under those auspices, then she would have stood a more than good chance of landing it. The problem is that the way it kind of emerged into the public domain was, it was apparently one of the last items on on the agenda of the last cabinet meeting before the government broke up for the summer. But most importantly, for the purposes of cohesion within the the coalition, it wasn't taken out for a walk politically, we understand. It wasn't vetted uh, beforehand. And the first that certainly the Fianna Fáil side of government heard about this is when it came around the cabinet table. And we understand that it caused some discussion and some dissent. And there is a a sense both at cabinet at the time and subsequently that the Taoiseach was blindsided by this. Nonetheless, cabinet acts collectively and collectively, it seems, failed to kind of notice the political risk attendant to this appointment and signed off on it. Almost simultaneously to that, in fact, perhaps probably before that actually took place, it was leaked out that this was happening and that set in chain uh, a sequence of events where a lot of people were looking at this appointment askance and saying, what are the precise circumstances? Immediately afterwards, Leo Varadkar went out and did an interview on it. The truth is, um, if this appointment had gone to a retired diplomat or a retired civil servant, nobody would have battered an eyelid on this mm-hmm. um, be- because that would be the norm. Uh, because it's a retired po- politician, uh, people are making political charges about it. And I think that's unfair. People immediately after that were saying, was this job created for? It took two days for Simon Coveney to do an interview on it. And then that was rather a tetchy interview, which gave the, the, the story more energy. So basically it was, it was a, a mismanaged cabinet appointment uh, which was leaked in real time. And then the fallout from that, as people started querying the circumstances of the appointment, was itself mishandled in real time. So, Jack, how did the Zappone appointment come about in the first place? 
So the first we heard was a tweet from Danny McConnell, who's the Irish Examiner's political editor, who attributed the memo being brought to cabinet to Leo Varadkar. But actually, it turns out that it was it was Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, who brought it, and that would be in in keeping with the kind of modalities of appointing someone to this role. It's a function of the Department of Foreign Affairs. Apparently, you know these particular type of roles around freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Uh, are being filled by countries similar to Ireland at the moment. So it's not necessarily an unusual thing for, for Ireland to do this. And Jack, as you've mentioned, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin, he didn't know anything about the job or the appointment until it was brought up in the cabinet meeting. Can you tell me a bit about how the Taoiseach reacted to this news? Yeah, so I think the, the Taoiseach's displeasure was was fairly clear, you know, uh, immediately afterwards. Um, uh, and and people close to him were talking to journalists and letting it be known that, you know, he wasn't briefed about it beforehand. Uh, Minister Coveney has accepted it was an oversight in terms of procedures. Uh, he, brought, he brought the appointment to, 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 to Cabinet. He, he accepts that fully. We move on now. But I think ultimately, you know, he bears responsibility for the mismanagement as well. Even though he was blindsided by it, he waved it through a cabinet. He is the Taoiseach at the end of the day. Had he wanted to kind of take a beat and say, right, we just need to step back from this for a couple of weeks or return to it after the break and make sure that everyone is comfortable with where the process is at, he could have done that. But they didn't and they lost control of the story. Then, last Friday, Simon Coveney went on RTE's News at One programme to talk about Catherine Sapone's appointment. He emphatically defended his decision to appoint Sapone to the role, insisting that she was the best person for the job. In all of the criticism that I've heard in the last couple of days, nobody has questioned whether Catherine Sapone is suitable to advocate uh, with, uh, the Department of Irish, uh, uh, with the Department of Foreign Affairs in areas of freedom of, freedom of expression. But Coveney didn't do much to address concerns over how she was appointed. So we was then, this position then, then, Minister, was this minister then for created for Catherine Zappone? No, it wasn't created for Catherine Zappone. Right. Did you consider uh, and, anybody and, else? And, no, I didn't because I thought um, we have somebody who's a former government minister who lives in New York, who has campaigned all of her life on issues around freedom of expression and opinion. Did that help matters in any way? I think that big set piece media interviews about controversial appointments or controversial news stories when they're being done by the cabinet minister relevant to that. It's always a point of danger and a point of opportunity for the government. The opportunity is to kill the story, to explain it credibly and make it go away. But it's also a big risk as well. And on this occasion, the manner in which Simon Coveney conducted the interview, cranky, tetchy, disputing questions, it gave the story new legs going into into the weekend. By the weekend, how was the affair being seen by others in the coalition government, by Fianna Fáil TDs or Green Party TDs? What were they saying? And did the move to appoint Sapone have support within Fine Gael outside of Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar? I think it did. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, when you boil it back, like this is not the world's most important job. And, you know, a political appointee to, to this role is not seen as something that's particularly unusual within the wider political system. So, you know, while the handling of it was the problem, the appointment itself wasn't actually that problematic. What, what really emerged over the weekend that was an issue was the focus shifted to the leaking of the story, how it emerged in real time. And there was this extraordinary... Um, yarn that emerged first of all through Miriam Lord's column in the Irish Times whereby 
a cabinet minister who was suspected of leaking this was effectively laid a trap for by a minister of state who told them that they had gone on to local radio to complain about the appointment. A few moments after the minister of state said this to the senior minister, the minister of state received a phone call or a text message from a journalist asking them to expand on the interview they'd just given on local radio. The only issue was that the minister of state had never gone on local radio. The whole interview had been uh, imagined or made up and effectively laid as a trap for the senior minister suspected of of having leaked this to, to further bolster the case that perhaps they had leaked it. And how have people reacted to that story of the leak over the weekend? I have to say that in, in some quarters, there is outrage over this. There's great displeasure about the fact that, you know, seemingly someone leaked it at, from Cabinet and a lot of people want something to be done about that. Allegations have been made about a senior government minister having leaked information from Cabinet. There seems to be some evidence out there about that. I, I think that needs to be addressed. On the other hand, some people are taking it in their stride. Some people are in a kind of perhaps world-weary or, or jaded political outlook kind of way of looking at things they're saying look leaks happen and you know things leak from cabinet all the time and what one person said to me is you can barely put a, a government memo up on e-cabinet without it without it being leaked almost almost immediately so there's a kind of sanguine approach to it as well but it certainly again it picked up a story that may have been flagging and, and gave it fresh legs new controversy and new energy around it coming up how an event in one of Dublin's most exclusive hotels intensified the scandal. And then this week, just when we thought things might be starting to quieten down, the story became even bigger after it emerged that Catherine Zappone had organised an event at the Marion Hotel in Dublin last month, just six days actually before her appointment, and that Leo Vracker was in attendance. Who else was there and why did it take place? It seems to have been a, a kind of personal uh, event that Catherine Zappone hosted on the 21st of July in the Marion Hotel for, for kind of close friends, you know, people who she may have been close to professionally. We know, as you say, Leah Varadkar was there, the Tonishta. Uh, we also know that Ivana Bacic, the newly elected TD for Dublin Bay South, was there. And uh, Donald Gagan, who is uh, Joint Chief of Staff to, to Eamon Ryan, was there as well. There, there are rumours about civil servants and other people attending, but like it seems to have been a kind of cross between... You you know, the personal, political and professional world of, of Catherine Sapone. And one of the big discussions since this news emerged has been the COVID restrictions, whether the Marion Hotel and Catherine Sapone broke restrictions by holding it outdoors. Uh, what do we know about that? It's an interesting one. If you look at the guidelines, and, and you have to understand exactly how the world of indoor dining and outdoor dining and hospitality and events works in the COVID era, generally speaking, there are regulations, statutory instruments, which are laid down by the government, and they are the law that, that, that must be abided by. Then there is guidelines usually issued by Falcher Ireland, which seek to kind of take the sometimes dense language of the statutory instrument, build it out, make it understandable, put it into layman's terms so that, you know, the, the hotels and the restaurants and the bars and the cafes and all the rest of it, they can actually understand what they do and, and don't have to do. When you look at the set of rules that Falcher Ireland have for hotels and restaurants, it says quite clearly organised outdoor gatherings aren't allowed. So that would seem to suggest straightforwardly that this may have been a breach of the guidelines and regulations. However, 
there are many different sets of guidelines depending on the setting. So if you look at the, the guidelines for restaurants and cafes, it also has that line about outdoor gatherings aren't permitted. But then at, at directly above that, confusingly and in a contradictory manner, it says that outdoor gatherings up to 200 people are permitted. So it would seem that there's enough grey area within the guidelines to make it, if you were looking for reasons as to why this event could go ahead, you could find them. The really interesting part, and bear with me on this one, is the regulations, the actual laws. And what happened yesterday is the government came out in the wake of this and said that the event was effectively in keeping with the laws as laid down and that those laws permitted certain categories of events, including social events, to take place outside with up to 200 people invited, which runs square in the face of a lot of the public health advice that has been communicated around things like communions and confirmations and the aftermaths of funerals. And I think that's where the story is going next and why it's a particularly long-standing political problem for the government. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the Attorney General did come out to confirm that it was permissible for up to 200 people to attend outdoor organised events. But as you've underlined, the whole affair has just drawn attention to how ambiguous code rules can be. And it's also drawn comparisons with the Golfgate scandal, which happened last summer, and which led to a minister and an EU commissioner losing their jobs, among others. And the public anger that followed the Golfgate affair, it was extraordinary. But so far, what happened in the Marion Hotel, doesn't seem to have riled up the public quite as much. Why, Jack, do you think that is? Is it because of where we are with the pandemic or do you still think it could lead to more anger? I think it's a funny one. Like, So the, the Golfgate comparisons were, were almost immediate. And I think in, in some very important ways, it's not like Golfgate, but in other important ways, it is like Golfgate. So I think that, as I said, you know, the fact that you have the Attorney General saying that this was broadly speaking in line with, uh, with, with, with the regs and you have a, a defensible case over the guidelines means that it's less clear cut a breach as may have been suggested in the, in the aftermath of Golfgate and Clifton last year. So I, I don't think you're going to get the same kind of head of steam building around, you know, who's the next head to roll and who did what and when and the kind of stuff that emerged last year around Phil Hogan's trip around the country and all, all the rest of it. So I don't think it's quite like Golfgate in that. Where it is similar to Golfgate is that COVID regs and COVID guidelines and advice and laws, they're quite often in conflict. You know, it's not hard to find contradictions, idiosyncrasies that, you know, play out across all these things. And the reason that's the case is because, you know, we've radically reorganized society and the way it works in, in short order. The reason that they work or the reason that there's a semblance of compliance with them is because there's a social cohesion underpinning them. People buy into it, notwithstanding the contradictions. When something like this happens and when, when it hammers home a sense that the government will find a way for something to be okay for one set of people while simultaneously speaking out of the other side of its mouth and saying a very similar looking event in the aftermath of a wedding or in the aftermath of a communion or confirmation is not okay. That undermines that sense of social cohesion. It feeds that sense that we're not all in together. And that very much is in the realm of the kind of public anger that flowed from Golfgate last year. So I think in those ways, in those important ways, it is quite similar. And the latest development in this story is that Catherine Zappone announced on Wednesday she was turning down the special envoy job. What does this mean? Do you think someone else will get the role or will it just cease to exist? 
Well, we asked the Department of Foreign Affairs that yesterday and, and shockingly they didn't come back with an answer and, and the government is kind of damned if they do and they're damned if they don't here because if they go off and they fill it in the same way, well then all the focus, all the political attention will remain on whether that process was robust enough and transparent enough and also will shift on to whoever is lucky and or unlucky enough to step into that role next. They're going to get targeted for all the same treatment that Catherine Zappone did. If they redesign the process and try and introduce some kind of element of transparency into it, well, then it's going to be problematic as well because they are de facto admitting that they didn't do it right the first way. So no matter which way they turn, they're going to face big political consequences from that. And what about Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar? What have they been saying in the last few days or have they been saying anything at all? And how will all of this impact their political careers? They're very much in the in the mode of lessons have been learned. And, you know, there are lessons to be extracted from this and, and you know, we won't do it again this way. I think that it, it, it damages both of them, but not in any way fatally. I think for Coveney, you know, it's clearly mishandled from the get-go. He didn't, he didn't socialise it with cabinet colleagues and, and coalition colleagues before bringing it to cabinet. That's a mistake on his part. I think for, for Varadkar as well, you know, there is a sense in some quarters that part of the reason the AG's advice was issued yesterday and that the government made it so clear that the event was in, in compliance with regulations was to kind of protect Varadkar from any political fallout himself. And there's certainly frustrations on the Fianna Fáil side of government which which date back as well to, you know, the, the kind of political cover that he needed from the rest of the coalition after it emerged that he leaked the GP document. So I think that, that will it will further under mind his standing I think internally in Fine Gael to some degree but also Fianna Fáil aren't happy about it and it, it undermines the overall coalition cohesion and relations within the coalition without doing so fatally or without fatally I think endangering either the careers of Simon Coveney or Leo Varadkar. What about the scandal itself? Do you think it's over or do you think something else could emerge in the next few days? In stories like this, something else can always emerge. You know, we can find out about someone else who was there, who was high profile. We can find out about other events that may have been similar and, and, and that can give it fresh legs. The biggest problem for the government, though, is is trying to square that circle around telling people not to have aftermaths of communions and confirmations, but also simultaneously saying that they are, in fact, within guidelines and trying to make that make sense within the guidelines that Fall Ireland is now, is now working on. They've been boxed in by their own defence on this and f- trying to figure out their way out of that, particularly in August when there's not a lot of other news stories, is going to be really problematic and, and tricky for them. Yeah, that's for sure. Jack, thanks so much for your time. That's all for today. You can read more from Jack Horgan Jones and his colleagues on the politics team about the Zappone controversy at irishtimes.com. In the News will be back on Monday. <laughs>